Hello, my loves, my bobolas. We are back. I am very excited to announce that Elon Musk is purchasing a 9% stake in the Lee Show podcast. He loves what we are doing on the show. He finds it to be informative. He's been a founding supporter of the show. He thinks you should become one too. LeeBressler.substack.com slash subscribe. Uh, he also bought a 9% stake in Twitter. Makes him the biggest shareholder in Twitter. It's interesting. You know, he, he Elon Musk is, is just great at tweeting. Obviously has a huge following. He tweeted last week with this poll, like, does Twitter need change or do we need new social networks? And uh, the, the implication was almost that he was going to create his own competitor to Twitter. Uh, I think my sense is that he is frustrated by Twitter's stifling of free speech. Um, you know, we've talked a lot on this show about how social networks have just too much power. Uh, they, they have power to censor people. And I get it. It's not censorship if the government doesn't do it. But if they do it at the behest of the government, if they do it at the barrel of a gun because the government says do this or or you're in, in trouble, then then, yeah, I mean, it is the government censoring. And, and it's stupid, right? This silencing of voices just because they're considered out of the mainstream because they're, they're, they're saying something that the people in power don't like because it's the New York Post publishing about Hunter Biden, because it's Babylon B tweeting something about uh, the, 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 the trans person who's in charge of the health department or whatever it's called. Yeah, Babylon B got kicked off. I mean, it's it's satire account, it's stupid, and 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 these you, you know the, these these accounts when you get kicked off, you have no recourse. You can't make your own Twitter. It's bullshit. Uh, my impression of the new CEO of Twitter is that he is pretty useless. I think he he seems ineffective. The company has not changed anything. He hasn't he hasn't done anything. Twitter's a, a it's fascinating because you know Ben Thompson has made this point numerous times. It has an incredible social value. It's very relevant. It's important. There are new ideas. There is there is important things happening in this sort of virtual town square. And yet it has very low market value relative to its social value. And there's room to match those two to each other. I would think. Elon Musk is uh, is joining the board of Twitter. Hopefully, he'll shake things up. It's interesting that he can do that. You know, he he bought his stake and then he filed what's called a 13G, which is the the form that you file when you're not intending to do any kind of an activism or shake things up. If you're planning to do activism, you have to file a 13D. Now, I guess he could swap them, but I, I don't know. I'm sure there's someone who a- approved this, but it's kind of interesting. Uh, Considering that the SEC already has it out for, for Musk, and and probably has a whole team whose full time job is just scrutinizing him, I would imagine someone is going to take a close look at this. I uh, I had a busy couple of weeks. I was in Seattle with my kids for uh, for their spring break, then I came back to New York. 
for a few days and then very quickly uh, went to San Francisco. My brother got married, uh, Mazel Tov, to Scott and Maddie. Very exciting. They got married over the weekend. I went out there a few days before the wedding to you know help with some last minute setup and have some bro time in San Francisco. This was definitely my favorite trip to San Francisco that I've ever taken. I thought the city was lovely. It is, uh, it's not as shitty as we're led to believe. I mean, there are shitty areas, don't get me wrong. Um, you know, the Tenderloin is kind of a dump. Most of the neighborhoods were just like really nice townhouses and just, they were fancy as hell. Really nice townhouses side by side with each other. It feels like much smaller than a, a big city. You know, I know there's a downtown. I didn't go downtown very much. And maybe it's maybe it's shittier downtown. I didn't go there much. But most of the neighborhoods I was in were, were lovely and, and felt like, you know, rich people central. Um, ate good food. Ate at a restaurant. My, I think my favorite one that I ate at was called Al's Place. Would definitely recommend that. I stayed in the Castro, which is like the super gay neighborhood, had, you know, good, uh, good coffee, good food there. Um, I stayed at a brand new hotel, the Hotel Castro and enjoyed it very much. One day I was sitting on the balcony of my hotel room and there was a police car that was sort of camped out below almost every day. There were just, you know, four cops that were just camped out there and they'd be, you know, having a powwow and, and chatting. And there was a guy who was obviously homeless, obviously a junkie. He was, you know, scratching himself and jonesing and and uh, and and you know having a tough time. Look, I'm 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 a junkie. I know what junkies look like. And uh, the cops didn't chase him away. They didn't harass him. They didn't shoo him away. They didn't arrest him. They one of them went to Molly Stones, which is this fancy organic supermarket across the street, and came back with a nine dollar juice for this guy. Now, the next day they arrested him. I saw that. The next day I was walking past the theater on Castro Street and they arrested him. Saw him in handcuffs there. But there was something really touching about the way they treated this guy with so much compassion. Like he's jonesing and, and they really, you know, were, were very kind to him. Um, the wedding was in Carmel, California. That's like a two-hour drive south of, uh, of San Francisco. It's a beautiful town. It's a Republican paradise. Like if you are 75 and you enjoy Fox News and you think golf is good and minorities are not good, then this is the town for you. It was like an old white guy's paradise. Uh, so I guess if that's your demographic, it's a very pleasant place to retire. Uh, it sort of felt like what Newport is in Southern California, though a little smaller than that. Uh, you know, mild weather, golf, beautifully manicured places. Also spent a night in Santa Cruz, which was a little bit tougher. I mean, there was like, you know, when I went downtown in Santa Cruz, it was like really skelly. And there's just, you know, the, these skelly guys screaming at the sky. And and I saw a woman light a phone book on fire. I don't even, I'm, where do you even get a phone book anymore? I don't even think they make that now. Um, watched the surfers in Santa Cruz, like on the coast, you can watch these surfers. So, uh, so that was nice. Anyways, the wedding was great. I gave a speech at the rehearsal dinner. I got a few laughs. I gave a, uh, a touching speech at the wedding. I think it was touching. I think it was nice. 
one of the stories I told at the rehearsal dinner, I was trying to be very gentle, very mild, like zero out of 10 mean. It was meant to be a roast, but like as mild as a roast could be. So one of the speeches I told, uh, one of the stories I told was about when, uh, when my brother started weightlifting, I want to say eight years ago, nine years ago. And he was really into deadlifting and he started posting videos of himself deadlifting on Facebook. And one night I'm at Shabbat dinner. I'm sitting at the table with my mother and it's quiet. And she goes, Lee, have you seen these videos that Scott is posting on Facebook where he's lifting weights to his penis? Why is he doing that? And it took me a moment like, to figure out what the hell is she talking about? I mean, I almost spit out my food. And then I realized, like, if you don't know what a deadlift is, that's how you would describe it. It's lifting weights to your penis. So, uh, so Scott, I hope, uh, I hope you have a, a lifetime of, uh, of lifting weights to your penis with Maddie. And, uh, and I wish you all the best on their honeymoon now. I hope it, uh, I hope it goes great. One company I want to tell you about is called VinoVest. It's a little bit of a strange one for them to sponsor the Lee Show, given that I've been sober for more than 21 years. But uh, VinoVest is the easiest place to invest in wine, which is a great way to tell people you are rich. It was founded by some smart VCs from Silicon Valley in partnership with master sommeliers and data scientists. I don't know what a master sommelier is. I was out to dinner once on vacation and the sommelier came by the table and opened a bottle of wine for the people that I was with. And he did this whole theatrical show of sampling it himself, pouring himself a, a, a little bit. And he took one sip and he spit the wine out really dramatically. The whole thing was very bizarre. Uh, so I guess maybe that's like the kind of guy who started this company. I don't know. I remember reading an article in, in the Wall Street Journal in 2005 about how super smart people we're diversifying into alternative asset classes like art and wine. Art's a tricky one, you know, because the really valuable stuff is unattainably expensive for most people. But wine investing has been a great trade for a long time. Excellent wines are scarce. They increase in value over time. And uh, as an asset class, it's been exceptional. According to these VinoVest people, I don't know where they got these numbers. They say that Wine has one-third the volatility of the stock market, and yet it has outperformed the global equity markets over the past 30 years with a 10.6% annualized return. Again, I don't know where they get those numbers from, but sure. Wine prices have outpaced inflation. They've been recession-resistant, and you can even invest in wine using cryptocurrency. That feels very futuristic. Uh, if you sign up for VinoVest now, you get two months of fee-free investing. The link is in the show notes. Click on the link, sign up with VinoVest, two months of fee-free investing in wine, which is a thing that rich people do and you are rich and you want to let everyone know. So go check it out. Get even richer investing in wine. When the uh, fighting started in Ukraine, I ordered something on uh, on Amazon that looks interesting. It's visually striking. And I, I posted a picture of it on my personal Instagram. It's uh, these tablets, they're called ThyroSafe potassium iodide tablets. 
65 milligrams that the packaging just like looks really intense you know this is not like a, a nicely dressed up consumer vitamin um, the idea behind these tablets is that if there's a major radiation incident a nuclear incident then you take this mega dose of potassium iodide and that it protects your thyroid which i guess is the part of your body most susceptible to the radiation uh, the packaging says it helps prevent radioactive iodine from getting into the thyroid gland during a nuclear radiation emergency and use along with other emergency measures recommended by public officials. So yeah, I mean, this stuff's pretty serious. I posted a picture of it. I got a lot of questions like, oh my God, do I need to buy this? Where can I get it? And uh, you know, what the, the brand that I bought is not available on Amazon anymore, but there are other brands. It's just, you know, generic 65 milligrams, potassium iodide tablets. There's uh, lots of them available, 30, 40 bucks, something like that for a jar of them. So, I mean, these are a, a fine thing to have around. I'm not convinced at all, though. In fact, I'm, I'm reasonably certain that this is not the best thing that you can do in terms of disaster planning. Um, I, I had a lot of people ask me, like, do I need this? And, and what do I do? And how do I build a disaster plan? So let's talk about that today. Let, let's have a little conversation about it. Um, you know, first of all, remember that there are many different kinds of disasters. There are natural disasters. There's disasters caused by other people. War, nuclear. I mean, you can imagine all sorts of different things. And preparing for them varies from one type to another. Uh, they're, they're, they're not all the same thing. Think about two important concepts. First of all, what will be the resources you need in a variety of different types of disasters? And the second thing is, what are the actions you should take to protect yourself and protect your family? So resources first. The obvious ones are water. You need a lot of water. Remember that an adult is going to be drinking about two liters of water per day, at least. So for a family of, say, four, you would need eight liters a day. Kids drink a little less, but they need to be hydrated. So you need a lot of water in place. And the annoying thing about water is that if you, you know, you buy 10 cases of bottled water to store up, like that's fine. That'll, that'll get you some time. It takes up a lot of space. It's ugly to have that around. Not a lot of people have the storage space for something like that. So bottled water is a, an important one. Cash is less important. Uh, it's fine at first as a medium of exchange, but when there's a serious emergency, the value of a dollar depreciates quickly because who knows what you can do with dollar bills. Useful things that you can barter are much more relevant. Ammunition is probably the most valuable currency in many different types of disasters. Ammunition and food are going to be very valuable. So, you know, maybe keep some cash around, but ammo, that's where it's at. Uh, you know, I just think about weapons in a scenario where 
law and order is breaking down, it's important to be armed. If there's widespread rioting, it's important to be armed. You need to be able to protect yourself, protect your family. The most valuable type of weapon is probably going to be a shotgun because you don't really need to aim. Remember, shotguns just fire these tiny little pellets out of a shotgun shell. It's not bullets. So when there's a bad guy, you just sort of point in the general direction and pull the trigger. Not going to be as accurate as a, as a handgun is, but does the trick. So have a shotgun. And then think about the plan. Think about the plan. So what happens if there is a nuclear incident in New York City? You've got two kids in different schools. I've got lots of friends who have this scenario. There's two parents, and they've got two kids in different schools. Nuclear incident happens. Not like the whole city is wrecked, but a small-scale nuclear incident happens. What do you do? You need to make sure that everybody has the same plan, and that even if you can't communicate with each other, even if the telephones aren't working, that you know what your spouse is going to do. Right? Imagine this scenario. The kids are in different schools. You and your spouse are not together. Husband is in an office somewhere. Wife is at home doing her Pilates class. I don't know. Or vice versa. But you got to know what the other one is going to do. So I would argue that the most valuable plan is husband goes to get the older child. Wife goes to get the younger child. Why? Because the older child is probably bigger and heavier. So it's makes more sense for whoever is stronger to get the older child. Who knows if you're going to need to carry them or, I mean, it depends. So you get the children. You need to know where to rendezvous. You need to know where you're going to meet up. And how long do you wait at that meetup point if the other one does not show up? And from there, what do you do? What's the next step? You don't want a situation where 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 one takes a, a child to New Jersey and the other one takes a kid to Long Island. You have to have a plan with specific timelines. If I'm not here in X number of minutes, go to the next point. If the emergency is of type X, immediately go to the next point. You got to have a plan. You have to have specifics that you can follow. Thyroid pills, like the ones I ordered, that's fine, but that's one small thing. Much more important is that you talk about this. Write up a, a document and format it so that it is in small print. Print it, laminate it, put it in your wallet. Take a screenshot of it so that you can access it even without an internet connection. But having a physical copy of this is valuable because who knows what electronics will be working. Have it saved in multiple apps in your phone in case one is not working. And each, you know, you can make the font as small as you want because you can zoom in. So have on there a detailed plan. If it is a chemical attack, do this. If it's a nuclear attack, do this. If it's a 9-11 style event, do this. 
and have a detailed plan in place. That's the most valuable thing you can do. Remember also that in a nuclear type of event, a few things happen. The first is there's an initial blast. And then you probably have a few seconds, depending on how far away you are, before the shockwave hits. Now, there's a, there, there's a theory that the most damaging aspect of a nuclear blast is not the bomb itself. Of course, that depends how big a bomb it is. But actually, it's the broken glass, right? Because everybody hears this sound or sees a flash, and they run to the window to see what's happening, and then the shockwave hits, it shatters the windows, and everybody ends up with broken glass in their eyeballs, and then they're blinded, and then they die. That's a bad scenario. So in the event there's this massive explosion, don't go staring out the window to see what happened. Don't try to video it for your Instagram story. Try to dive into a bathtub, into an internal closet. Just get away from the windows. Then you want to get to a basement or a sub-basement. You want to be as far away from the air outside as you can. Don't come out unless you need to. Now, remember, these things are, are infinitesimally small probability of happening. So I'm not trying to scare you, but you need to think about this stuff. You have to have a plan. Discuss it with your significant others. Discuss it with your family, not your kids if they're tiny, right? Like, don't scare the hell out of them. But have a, have a plan. Understand just the very basics of radiation, how it travels, how it travels with the wind, how chemical agents travel with the wind. Have a plan. Who gets picked up first? Think about a go bag with the papers that you might need, with the things that you might need, your passports. Not because you're hopping on a plane internationally, maybe you are, but it's a good way to identify yourself, to show citizenship. Medication, that's a big one. If there is medication that you or your family members cannot live without, then you need to think about how you build a sufficient supply birth certificates, property deeds. These are all valuable things to keep in a go bag. Keep your phone charged as often as possible. You're going to feel a lot more confident in a disaster if your phone's at 100% and not at 8%. Don't be irresponsible. So think about this stuff. Plan for a disaster and understand what you should be doing to be prepared, to make sure that your family is prepared. We've talked on the show a little bit in the past about standardized tests. I'm fascinated by standardized tests. I think I'm fascinated by it because I was good at them and I had shitty grades, which some would say meant I was lazy or maybe that the test is formulaic and you can prepare for it. I don't know. I was always good at them. The SAT, the GMAT, whatever. Those tests always came very naturally to me. And I enjoyed them. Other people stressed about them. A lot of schools have been falling over themselves to abandon the SATs. And that struck me as kind of a weird thing. Um, I mean, that 
there's a bunch of plausible explanations. I think the most plausible real explanation for why they are doing this is because they don't want so many Asian students. I think they they don't want Asian students. They don't want to over-index to Asian students. I think top universities already feel over-indexed to Asian students. And uh, if you have SATs and the Asian students study for it and prepare for it and then have a good score, it's harder to deny them admission. And so eliminating the SATs theoretically seems like a way to discriminate against Asians because they seem to care more and prepare for the test. I, I don't know. Maybe. I would argue there's another reason for it, which is that eliminating the SATs makes it easier to admit the stupid kids of legacies, right? You're a legacy at Harvard and your spouse is a legacy at Harvard. You both went there and you have a kid who's a a dum-dum. You know he can't do well on the SATs. You know that no matter how much money you throw at this, no matter which tutors you hire, he's not going to do well on the SATs. GPA is easier to tinker with. There's no standardization in GPA. I went to a very, very rigorous private high school. There is no way that a kid who has a 4.0 from that high school, I went to Choate. There's no way a kid with a 4.0 from Choate is comparable to a kid with a 4.0 from generic random public school. There's just, that's not comparable. Grades are a lot easier to tinker with. GPAs are not a standardized thing. And so I think it's a lot harder to discriminate against the stupid kids, the, the, the moronic children of your legacies when you have to get the SATs. You, one, one would argue that if you were really trying to accept high-performing Black and Hispanic students, wouldn't having the SATs be a useful thing? Because theoretically, then they can th- those students can set themselves apart. You've got poor Black and Hispanic kids. They can set themselves apart with the SATs, maybe. And, and of course, there's you know th- this this idea that the SAT is not as legitimate because you can buy your way through tutors to a better score. I mean. You can buy your way to a better college application. If you write on your college college application that you're captain of the varsity rowing team, wonderful, great accomplishment. That that means you're a rich kid. Like you're buying your way to having that accomplishment because if you are a poor kid, you won't have access to those things, most likely. If you write on your college application that you volunteered to build houses in Rwanda, that's great. Good for you. That's a that's a wonderful thing. But that's a signaling effect as well. Now, it's interesting that MIT decided this week, MIT, one of the, the, the greatest universities in America, decided this week to bring back the SAT. I'm fascinated by this. I, I have to wonder, is the, the movement against the SAT is some sort of woke, somehow related to the woke movement? 
And is this a sign that the pendulum is swinging back against wokeness, right? Tyler Cowen said a few weeks ago that we've reached peak woke. I would tend to agree with this. So is MIT bringing this back a sign that we have in fact reached peak woke? Something to think about. When I started this podcast, I did a lot of research on the tools that you need to record a podcast. I mean, there's tons of options out there. I tried everything. I hated most of them. A lot of the tools are, are excessively complicated, so you need to be like a trained audio engineer. That's not me. Other tools try to oversimplify things so much that you lose control over the recording. That wasn't useful. And after trying out all this stuff, I realized that Zencaster was the best option. So I've been using Zencaster to record my podcast. That's what I'm using to record right now. I can record sound. I can record video. I can do separate audio and video tracks for me and for my guests. That makes editing so much easier. There's a whole secured cloud backup. So you never lose your interviews like Hunter Biden loses his laptop. It's very easy to use. Nothing to download. Just send a link to a guest and start recording. Listeners of The Lee Show can use the link in the show notes and get 30% off your first three months with Zencaster. Click the link in the show notes or go to zen.ai slash The Lee Show. Highly recommend this. If you've thought about starting a podcast, if you want to learn more about the process, just give me a call. Text me. Email me. I'm happy to be a resource for you. And I'd recommend you use Zencaster when you do it. One of my listeners, many of my listeners are a little nuts. One of them is particularly nuts. He uh, he messaged me and he, um, this was sort of a weird one. He said, the fact that I was talking about Hunter Biden on the last episode of the podcast meant that I was some sort of a partisan. I was an extreme partisan. And so I started thinking about what is partisanship. I asked him, what what do you mean by that? What does partisan mean to you? And he just kept saying, it's the definition. So what what does partisan mean? To me, and I don't think of myself as partisan, I think of partisanship as, as someone whose first loyalty is to a team. It's to a political party rather than to an issue. A partisan who says my first affiliation is Democrat or Republican So whatever the Democrats say, that's what I believe. Whatever the Republicans support, that's what I believe. I don't don't buy into that kind of affiliation. First of all, I voted for people in different parties in just about every single election. I think that partisanship is what you do if you're sort of simplistic, right? If, If you don't have the ability to develop an opinion on each specific issue, if you lack the critical reasoning skills to develop that bespoke opinion on each issue, then you become partisan because it's a a shorthand. It's a heuristic that just says, I'll adopt whatever their view is on the current thing. This is what the Republicans think on the current thing. So that's my view. That's not me. I mean, I just, I, I take every issue, I pick it apart. Some issues I care about, some I don't. But I definitely don't think I'm partisan. I think that's probably the worst way to describe me. But, you know, of course, th- this this suggestion came from probably the, the craziest person who listens to this show, and, and there's a lot of crazies. I just, I don't rely on those kinds of heuristics. I, I 
I focus on what I think matters. I might not get the right point of view, but I give it a try. And I continue to believe that Hunter Biden was incredibly corrupt. That's fine. That's a little bit interesting. I think the much more interesting part of that story was the suppression of the story on social media. That's the most interesting thing, that Twitter decided to suppress that story, that Facebook decided to suppress that story, that they labeled it as misinformation and suppressed it. It was politically relevant, and they suppressed the story. They expressed an editorial opinion about what should be published and what deserves attention. And that is what I find interesting. When you are expressing an editorial opinion, you're deciding who is right, who has a voice, who is not. When Twitter bans the Babylon Bee, they're expressing an editorial opinion. When they ban the New York Post, they're expressing an editorial opinion. And so I I would say again, they do not deserve the protection they are afforded under U.S. law, under Section 230, as neutral platforms. And just as the phone company is protected, if you decide to make a phone call and say something criminal on the phone, Twitter has that protection right now. If you write something libelous on Twitter, you can be held liable for it. Twitter cannot. They have that protection. Of course, if the New York Times writes something libelous, they don't have that protection because they make editorial decisions. They're deciding who to publish. So the New York Times has a responsibility to fact check and make sure they get things right. Twitter doesn't have that because anyone can publish on there. So they don't have that responsibility, except that they are expressing an editorial point of view. And they can't have it both ways. Now, I'm curious, we talked a little earlier about Elon Musk on on joining the board of Twitter. I'm really curious what that will mean for the company. I'm very curious if they are going to move back towards the direction of free speech. I, I, I really believe that Jack Dorsey was a supporter of free speech rights. I'm very curious what's going to happen with Elon Musk on the board. I, I you know, I, the CEO seems ineffective and he certainly seems like he is just captured by the woke mob. We'll see. I'm 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 fascinated to watch. I think uh my instinct is that Twitter as a stock is still a buy. I've thought that for a long time. I just think that the the amount of lock-in on this platform and its social value, at some point its market value will catch up with that.